Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up your name. You are the living God. You are the God who speaks. And even as we uh, look at your, your commandments that you've given us, the Ten Commandments, we remember, Lord, that they come from a God who is personal and relational and speaks and sees and hears and that you seek for us to live with you. So, Lord, help us to see um, you face to face, but also see the life that you've called us to in you. In Jesus' name, amen. What do a white Catholic schoolboy, a native Indian elder, and a black Hebrew Israelite have in common? Well, you may or may not have been following the news, but there was a lot of controversy this week as a group of white Catholic schoolboys from Kentucky, a group of black Hebrew Israelites, and also a group of Native American um, I don't know if they were protesters, I didn't get that part of it, were all gathered in the Washington DC mall and there was so much uproar in the news and the social media about what happened on that day. But I know for sure that what they have in common is that they became the center of viral news and everyone and anyone sought to give their opinion on it and they unwittingly became representatives of all these different polarized views in the US. And it reminds me that if you listen to really any cable news talking head, one of the most favorite critiques that a talking head would like to give is the cry of hypocrisy, right? It doesn't matter what camp you're in, the cry of hypocrisy is just such an easy way to critique the other side. It's hard to defend against because the reality is there is a lot of hypocrisy in this, in this world. There's people saying one thing and doing another. And so it's an easy critique. And yet it also points to this fact that we all desire to live lives of integrity, that our lives match the words that we speak. As they say, there's even honor among thieves. Even thieves desire integrity in the way they relate to each other. What we also know as people who believe in God and his word is that this white Catholic schoolboy, this Native American elder, and the black Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites are all made in God's image. They all bear the image of God, regardless of what we think of their views. They all are created to bear God's name and to represent God himself. Now, depending on your own worldview or political view, you may have empathized with one side or the other, one person or the other, but I wonder if you, like many, were caught in that rush to judgment. And maybe something even worse. Consider C.S. Lewis's word, words in Mere Christianity. He says this. Suppose one reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true. Or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God. Even they aren't as bad as it seems. Or is, a, or is it a feeling of disappointment or even determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies are as bad as possible? If it is the second, 
than it is, I am afraid, the first steps in the process, which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. If we give that wish its head later on, we shall see that gray, we, see, we shall see gray as black, and then see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends, and ourselves included, as bad and not able to stop doing it. We shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. It's a little bit funny to read this quote in context of what I just said because it doesn't sound very politically correct, but I hope you get the sense of what C.S. Lewis is saying. We so easily, even when corrected, want to believe the worst in people rather than to believe the best. We all have this desire for integrity, but we find even within ourselves that we betray our own desire for integrity. And it's this strange tension that we live with. And in this commandment we'll look at today, the third commandment, we're going to look at how it reflects a desire for integrity in all of us. So we're going to jump, jump into that. And I'm going to just go through the first three commandments very quickly as a brief overview. But remember, in Exodus 20, verse 1, um, God first reminds his people what he has done. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that is so important. It's just a brief statement, but it's a reminder. God is in relationship with these people. He has already saved them, and now he calls them to walk with him. He says, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So in this first commandment, we address who we worship. And God says, it is God alone. And then he goes on the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We looked at this commandment last week. And the second commandment addresses how we worship. The first addresses who we worship. The second addresses how we worship. And we looked last week at how we worship is not by creating wood or metal or stone idols, but we worship through Jesus alone. That he is the image of the invisible God and we worship through Jesus alone. And then we come to the third commandment, today's focus. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And this commandment, again, is so often misunderstood, but it is essentially about our attitude of worship, and it points us to how we are to reverently worship God in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. So again, I've said in past weeks, we're looking at how the commandments overall reflects this pre-fall desire in all of us, how God originally made us, and today we're looking at how God originally made us with a desire for integrity, but we also understand we are fallen creatures, and so scripture points us to the hope we have in God, and specifically through Jesus, and i excited that we will walk through the Ten Commandments looking, looking at how for each and every commandment, Jesus is the fulfillment of each and every commandment, and so we will see today that Jesus is our integrity, for he is God's name and our name. 
Jesus is our integrity, for he is God's name and our name. Okay, so let's look at how attitude of worship, our attitude of worship should be reverent worship, right? Maybe you challenge that, but let's take a look in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, that says this. When Isaiah comes before, oh, I'm sorry, this is just the setup. When Isaiah comes before the presence of God, um, he says these words, and he, he, there's these angels saying, holy, holy, holy. And, and Isaiah, the prophet, responds to God in this way. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We see Isaiah just realizing how far he falls short of God's goodness, God's holiness, and he bows down in reverent worship to God, and that's shows us an example of how we too should come before God. We should come reverently before Him. And that reverent worship certainly involves our words, how we speak of God. But that reverent worship must also come through how we live our lives as well. And we'll be looking at that's what integrity really is, right? It is how our lives match our words. And we'll dive into that more deeply. When you look at the third commandment at first glance, you might think, God seems very thin-skinned. Surely he can't be that bothered that we're turning his name into a cuss word. And it reminds me of when, before I was a Christian, I did actually use Jesus Christ as a cuss word pretty frequently. And I don't even know why. It just maybe other people were doing it, and I started doing it too. Oh, Jesus Christ! And it's strange thinking back now. It is a weird thing. It's like, what if I'd been like cussing Mahatma Buddha or Mohammed or Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith is founder of Mormonism, right? Like those would all sound very strange if I did that. But no one does that. I mean, but people do commonly use Jesus Christ as a cuss word. But here's the thing. When we look at the name of God and how this commandment says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. It's not just a name. It's not just a name. We even talked about last week how names are important in the Old Testament because names describe the essence of that person, of that being. And so when God talks about his name, he's not just talking about the name Jesus Christ or the name Yahweh or whatever other names he references himself with. His name, re his name represents his reputation. It represents his being. It represents his character, his qualities, the works that he has done. His name represents him because he is completely whole. Right? We are people who are broken and fallen. And we don't always live up to our names, to who we think we are. But God always does. His name completely represents who he is. And that's why it's not just a name. And we see this frequently in scripture. Proverbs 18.10 says this. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower, right? It's saying the name of the Lord is our protection. Is it literally just the name is our protection? No, he's saying God is our protection. And the name of God represents who God is. So to not take the Lord's name in vain, in the most narrow sense, is to speak reverently of God, who he is, what he has done, his character, his titles, his qualities. 
And it really shouldn't be that strange to us because we understand that even in our broken world. In our broken world, we want to both worship our celebrities and also tear them down. I mean, I'm sure the times you've been to the grocery store, you're checking out and you kind of glance at the National Enquirer, you know, right at the checkout. I hope none of you buy it. Please don't give money to it. But you might take a look at the crazy headlines on there. You know, all the juicy gossip that's supposedly going on with the celebrities, and I feel a little bit wrong, but I went online to look at what the latest headlines is, and the latest headline was this. Botched Meg Ryan ditches plastic surgery. The actress is laying off Botox and fillers before marrying John Mellencamp. I felt offended. I love Meg Ryan. When Harry Met Sally is one of my favorite movies. But really, what do I care about whether Meg Ryan's having plastic surgery or not? Why does someone get to make money off of this headline, off this story? How would I like it if I was on some headline that said I was botched, right? That wouldn't be very fun. But we do the same thing with God. We both want to worship God, commandment one. We have a desire for worship, but at the same time, we want to tear God's name down. We want to bring God down to our level. Even in our society, and we have lawyers in this room, I'm sure they can speak very intelligently to this, there are laws governing legal use of people's names. Defamation and slander lawsuits are a real thing. And I looked up some recent ones that stood out to me. And there was one, and I picked this one because I remember this story. But in 2012, ABC News released a story about Beef Products Incorporated, about how their processed meat is like pink slime. And I remember watching this story going, ugh, that's gross. I don't want to eat that anymore. And so Beef Products sued ABC News for this story. And New York Times and Business Insider estimated that if um, Beef Products won, that they could have been awarded as much as $5.7 billion for this story. And Beef Products sought $1.9 billion in damages. And in fact, just in 2017, they, they settled the case for $177 million, which is still no small sum of money. Defamation and slander is a real crime in society. And we recognize that. We acknowledge that. People's names, companies' names need protection. We can't just willy-nilly say whatever we want about someone. And yet, we think this idea of defaming God is just kind of silly. Like, God, man up. It's fine. Stop being so thin-skinned. But God doesn't think defaming his name is silly. And the reason for this is, it's not just words. It's not just words, right? God says in scripture, our words reveal our hearts. And you know, God longs for our hearts. Jesus says this to challenge the controlling and legalistic Jewish religious leaders. He says, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his treasure what is evil. Again, as humans, we tend to think words are just words, right? But Jesus says our words reveal our hearts, and therefore God will hold our words accountable. 
how we use God's name, how we use um, any reference to who God is, reveals our attitude towards God, reveals our worship of God in the end. And that's not to say that we're always to be just completely serious when we speak of God. God is a God of joy and laughter and play. But it does mean that we ought to be always reverent when we speak of God and who he is. But God, again, doesn't just call for reverence in words. He calls for reverence in word and in life. And we see this here through the language that's used in the Hebrew language. And if you're interested in a theological book, my professor, John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, is excellent. And I'm quoting him a lot, a lot in this series because it just was the best resource I thought on the Ten Commandments. But he says this, But the verb take, and do not take the Lord's name in vain, but the Lord take here is not amar or devar, one of the common Hebrew words translated speak. Rather, it is nasah, a term usually translated lift up, bear, or carry. So the commandment is not only about speaking God's name, but more broadly bearing it. What does it mean to bear God's name? We belong to him. Our identity is to be the people of God. We take that identity with us wherever we go. Whenever we violate his covenant, we bring dishonor on the name of God that we bear. We injure God's reputation, his good name. If you are Asian in this room, you get this. We represent our family. But you get it if you're Western and white, right? You may be more individualistic as a culture, but you get, you represent your family. And God is saying, you bear his name if you put your faith in Christ. You represent him, his name, his reputation. I've always resisted, and I might have said this before, putting a fish, Jesus fish symbol in the back of my car because I don't want anyone to associate my driving with Jesus. And I would just rather not be held accountable. And it's very common to do that or to even tattoo Jesus, God, Hebrew, Greek words on your body, wear a cross. But even without any of those symbols on your car, on your body, you bear God's name. If you call yourself a Christian, you bear God's name with your life. At the end of every service, we do a benediction. And my favorite benediction to do as a pastor is the ironic blessing. You may not know, what you may not know is that what, what is said in numbers after the blessing that is given, right? So you may know this part because you've heard it a lot, maybe in this church or in others. But in number six, this is the blessing that God says to the priests, say this blessing to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace, right? So that probably sounds quite familiar to you. But the next verse Verse 27 says this, So they will put my name, they, the priests, so the priests will put my name on the Israelites, and I will bless them. Right? The ironic blessing, this blessing that the priests give to God's people, is about reminding the people of God, you are God's name in this world. You are God's name in this world. And yes, the blessing is God turning his face in delight to you out of his love, out of his grace, 
But because of that, you now bear his name. You carry his name around you wherever you go. And when you carry God's name with you wherever you go, you carry his blessing with you for his glory. And this fits with how God created us. And I, this is going to be a familiar verse, but this is what God said when he created human beings. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. He's saying, it's not saying you all need to be zookeepers. He's saying, I've given Given you this world to rule over in my name. Humans were made in God's image to represent God and to rule in his name in this world. We are meant to be God's representatives. We are meant to be his vice regents, the rulers under God. We are to represent him and his name and how we speak and how we live. We are to represent his goodness. We are to represent his love in this world. That was God's original design for humans. And so we ought to worship God with our words, but also with our life. And to be able to do that means living a life of integrity. So here's a definition just from a dictionary of integrity. All right. The first definition, firm adherence to a code of especially moral or, or, or artistic values, incorruptibility. Two, an unimpaired condition, soundness. Three, the quality or state of being complete or undivided. Right? An adherence to a code, a moral code. Quality of being whole, undivided. We all want that. I think in the end, we were created with that desire to live lives of integrity in this world. As I said earlier, there's, there's honor amongst thieves. Even thieves, gang members, have a code that they adhere by. Even if you think they just do the most horrible, despicable things, the design of God is still imprinted on them. They are not so fallen that there is no trace of God left in them. Most of us relate to hating our sins, our flaws, our weaknesses, our fracturedness, our lack of wholeness and integrity. Those things that keep us from living the lives that we want to live. Forget even adhering to God's code. We have a code ourselves that we hold ourselves to that we can't even uphold. And Paul describes that desire for integrity very powerfully in a familiar verse in Romans 7. People find it confusing, but hopefully you'll track with it. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For if I, for if I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Paul is talking about this tension, right, of like, there's all, these, there's all this good that I want to do and I never do it. Well, maybe not never, but I don't do enough of it. There's all this bad that I want to stop doing and yet I keep doing those things. There's this brokenness he's describing in him and in all of us. 
this lack of integrity between our beliefs and words and our actions and our lives. You might, well, I'm going to have us ask the question, what is the opposite of integrity? You might say the opposite of integrity is just to be as sinful as possible. But I think the opposite of integrity is hypocrisy. The opposite of integrity is hypocrisy. And Jesus had very sharp words for those he saw as hypocrites, particularly the Jewish religious leaders of the time. And one of the famous phrases that many will find convicting, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 4 and 5, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the same time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's really quite funny if you listen to it, right? It's like, how can you even see the speck in someone's eye when there's a plank blocking your vision to see what's really there in someone else's eye? None of us like feeling like we are hypocrites. None of us like seeing that lack of integrity in our lives between what we say we believe and how we actually live. We all know that there is some gap between those things. And so we're often left to and tempted to do these things instead when we see that hypocrisy in our own lives. First, we might just try to lower God's requirements so that it seems more manageable. Let's just say the third commandment is just not saying Jesus Christ is a cuss word. I think I can handle that. Right? Two, we inflate our sense of righteousness so we can feel better about ourselves before God. Well, look, I have not said Jesus Christ as a cuss word for like two weeks now. It's pretty good. Three, we begin to take God's grace for granted. And four, we work harder at adhering to God's law. This might sound counterintuitive at first. But when I say that, I mean working harder to adhere to God's law, but not in response to God's grace, but as a way to earn God's grace. That's what the gospel is about. Yes, we are to seek to live in a way that is worthy of God, worthy of his name. But our motivation is not to then be to say, God, look at me. I'm so much better now. I've got it all together. It's out of response to the love that he's already shown us, the grace that he's already shown us. And in the end, if we take these options, these four options, what happens to us is we deprive ourselves of truly experiencing the depth of God's love for us. When the reality is this is God's code for us, his law for us, and this is our ability to fulfill it, This is really not how far apart it is, but this is as far as my arms will reach. But then we say, really, this is the distance. And we're like, okay, this is how much God loves me. When in fact, his love is so much bigger than that. It's very difficult to live, to worship reverently through both our words and our actions and our lives to worship God with integrity. It's difficult. It's difficult to face the reality of that. 
But scriptures tell us that in the last days, and that means in the days of Jesus and beyond, in the last days, God gives us Jesus to be our integrity because he is God's name and he is our name. He bridges that gap for us. When we see Jesus being accused before the Pharisees, what is the accusation made of him? Right? The high priest asked Jesus that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's asking, are you saying you are God? And Jesus answered, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referencing a prophecy in Daniel saying, yes, I am saying I'm God. I am the one who rides on the clouds. That was an image of who God was in the Old Testament. And so, quite appropriately, given the high priest's point of view, verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Jesus has taken the name of God upon himself. He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered and said, Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophecy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Jesus was crucified for claiming to be God, for claiming God's name upon himself, claiming to be divine. And yet we see the name of Jesus, what we're taught in scripture is Acts says there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12, we are saved on account of his name, on account of his love, on account of what he's done, on account of his sacrifice, on account of his resurrection from the dead, on account of his breathing the Holy Spirit into our lives to give us new life. Jesus is the only one with perfect integrity. And he says, that is now yours because you have put your faith in me. And even beyond that, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy made from long ago in Ezekiel. And you've heard this because we say this at our church often. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my instructions. God breathes his spirit into us and enables us to follow his commandments. And Peter says this in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel. You will receive the Holy Spirit in you if you trust in his name. It just means when we feel that gap, when we feel that gap in our integrity, We turn not to just working harder. We turn to Jesus' name because Jesus' name is God's name. And through faith in Jesus, Jesus is our name. Jesus' name has been put on us. We bear his name and we bear all that his name represents. And his name represents his perfect integrity, which is now ours, which is why we can stand before God in full confidence 
even though he is the holy, holy, holy God. I want to conclude with this thought. G.K. Chesterton said this, the only strong argument against Christianity is Christians. The only strong argument against Christianity is Christians. How often have you heard this? I can't believe in this Jesus. Look at all these Christians. They're awful. They're hypocrites. They're judgmental. R.C. Sproul says this though. What happens is that people observe church members sinning and they reason within themselves. That person professes to be a Christian. Christians aren't supposed to sin. That person is sinning, therefore he is a hypocrite. The unspoken assumption is that a Christian is one who claims he does not sin. In reality, just the opposite is the case. For a Christian to be a Christian, he must first be a sinner. Being a sinner is a prerequisite for being a church member. This is true. If you ever become a member of this church, you have to say a vow that I am a sinner and I need God's grace. The Christian church is one of the few organizations in the world that requires a public acknowledgement of sin as a condition for membership. In one sense, the church has fewer hypocrites than any institution because by definition, the church is a haven for sinners. If the church claimed to be an organization of perfect people, then her claim would be hypocritical. But no such claim is made by the church. There is no slander in the charge that the church is full of sinners. Such a statement would only complement the church for fulfilling her divinely appointed task. I mean, R.C. Sproul was right on track in his typical rational fashion. But he doesn't account enough for how often Christians don't portray themselves as broken, as sinners, as those in need of God's grace. How often do we instead portray ourselves as good and judging the sin of others, pointing out the speck in other people's eyes rather than seeing the plank in our own? We need to be able to recognize our own weakness, our own sin, and be willing to acknowledge that. Not just when we become a member and we have to make a vow before God and the congregation, but in our daily lives to recognize our weakness, our brokenness, and our need for Jesus. To live with integrity, then, as a broken person in this world, is to simply recognize that brokenness to God, to ourselves, to the world. To recognize that we are constantly in need of God's unconditional love and grace. And to respond to that grace, to live a life worthy of his name. Not because we're desperate for him to love us more, but because we know that he already loves us to the full. To live with a sense of freedom, knowing that through Jesus, we do have, we are seen as having perfect integrity before God. Because Jesus' name has been put on us. All of who Jesus is has been given to us. So we can now go out into this world and perfectly bear God's name. Go ahead, tattoo Jesus all over you. You're not a hypocrite because you rest and rely upon Jesus and his righteousness for you. 
as fallen beings, we simply cannot be perfect in this life. A life of integrity therefore means honesty, repentance, and reliance on God's grace. That's what it means to take seriously this commandment. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. That is our powerful witness in this world when we can live with that kind of humility and that kind of dependence on God. So what do a white Catholic schoolboy, a Native American elder, and a black Hebrew Israelite have in common? They represent all of us. They represent our desire for integrity, our need for Jesus, who is our integrity. Jesus is the one who makes us whole. He is making all things new, and it is in his name that we find confidence to relate to God and to this world, to be able to bear his name, knowing that we are not hypocrites because we have trusted in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.